Hello, 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 and welcome to Tease Me. This is a podcast about the intersection of golf, business, and life. And occasionally we'll drop some gems on networking and just how that makes your life better. Because knowing more than one person is actually a good thing. Welcome to another episode of Tease Me. This is season two and it's episode number 29. And we're just excited because it's May and May means that we can play more golf and more golf in nice weather and more golf with less clothing on. Well, okay, maybe, maybe that's not a thing. I don't know. It's a thing for me. I like to wear skirts to play golf and I get to walk and it's, I'm walking before it becomes intolerably hot. May is also the beginning of golf fundraiser season. And what does that mean? That means that every friend that you know that volunteers for a nonprofit is going to send you an invitation to their golf outing. And so when you're looking at these outings and you're looking at like what you should go to or what you shouldn't go to, think about what's important to you personally. Does the organization raise funds for something that you care about? Um, Do you find value in the work that you're doing? Do you have a relationship or friendship with the people that are throwing the tournament? Do you feel like you want to support them because their success is your success? If any of those things apply to you, then that's a golf tournament that you should attend. Another good reason to attend a golf tournament is that it might be a great business or networking opportunity. I'm a huge advocate of meeting people at golf tournaments. Why? Because you have a shared interest usually. So for example, if you're going to a golf tournament for say the firefighters of New York City, specifically the Balkan Society, you'll say, I want to go to this event because I think the first responders are an audience that I care tremendously about because they save people from burning buildings, you know, like Superman. And in this case, we're trying to raise money for recruitment of black firefighters and EMS workers and other entities that are first responders. Well, that's awesome. I'd love to go to that event. Well, lucky for you, we actually know someone who is hosting that event. So let me introduce you to today's guest. Our guest for today is Hisham Tafik. Long before becoming widely known as Dembe, a Sudanese freedom fighter and right-hand man to Raymond Reddington on NBC's hit show The Blacklist, Hisham Tafik discovered his passion for the arts in his high school while performing the poem I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Hisham then studied at the world-renowned Negro Ensemble Theater Company, which has brought forth such notable actors as Denzel Washington, Ossie Davis, and Felicia Rashad. He also studied with Susan Batson, who is known for coaching actors such as Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise, and Jennifer Connelly. Hisham says, as an actor, just like a human being, evolution and education is infinite. Hisham also starred in the groundbreaking one-hour drama, Gun Hill, as Captain Sanford. Gun Hill stars Lorenz Tate, Tawny Cypress, and Aisha Hines. He has also starred in episodes of 30 Rock and Nurse Jackie. Throughout his career, Hisham continues to call on his life experiences and training to inform his choices as an actor and artist. Be it as a Marine in Desert Storm, a correction officer at Sing Sing Correctional Facility, or as one of New York's bravest NYFZ, Hisham says, I enjoy portraying the leaders, fathers, and husband roles with heavy emotional currents flowing through the story and character. I also love the work that has a spiritual tone. Evidence of his ethic can also be seen in his dramatic episodic work on FX's Lights Out or NBC dramas Law and Order, SVU, and Criminal Intent. Welcome, today's guest, Hisham Tafik. Hisham, tell us about yourself. How did you even become a firefighter? Ah, uh, 
<laughs> Great question, but uh, thank you for having me, Latoya. So how did I become a firefighter? When I came home from the Marine Corps, I, you know, had my head on my shoulders and I was like, I'm gonna hit the ground running and just take all the civil service exams. So I took the police department, Port Authority Police specifically, uh, sanitation and correction. And those are the only civil service exams that interested me at the time. And I remember coming home, I don't know if I was coming home from college or something, and uh, there was a flyer actually right behind me on the window cell. And I pick up the flyer and it said, do you want to become a firefighter? And it's a Vulcan society. And I was like, wow, firefighter. That never, ever crossed my mind, which is weird because I was really into um, physical jobs. Like I was a lifeguard. I was a Marine. I was a Boy Scout. So I loved doing jobs with the required uniform and serving people and helping people and emergency response. And I was like, wow, the fire department, that's interesting. I think I, I want to sign up for that. So I filled out the postcard. I mailed it in. And I remember these brothers' names to this day. It was Paul Washington, Larry Brown, Mike Marshall. Um, I remember them reaching out to me and they told me they were going to start having these free tutorial classes to prepare for the written exam. They told me that it was extremely competitive and that I had to get like above a 97, 98. Um, and they told me the physical test was extremely competitive also. So I got on their mailing list and they would call me free written classes, these free uh, physical classes and prepare myself and took the exam and knocked it out the box. And at the time I was a correction officer um, at Sing Sing. And I rem I'll never forget, I got that letter in the mail saying that my start date in the academy was February 4th, 1996. And I was like, it was, it was uh, about three weeks from when I got the letter. And I remember I never went back to work. And back then I was living paycheck to paycheck. So it was a huge thing. I didn't go back to work. I think I struggled for the next, you know, two months because it took a while for my academy check to kick in. But I uh, never went back to work. The academy kicked in. I went to the academy and that's how uh, it all started. So. So what I'm hearing is someone that just likes difficult jobs. You were in the service, then you went a corrected a corrections officer, and then you went to the fire department. I you like, just like hard work. I just I like hard, dirty work, something that gets my my heart racing, my adrenaline pumping, but at the same time serving others. Got it, got it. So tell me more. Like, what were some of your experiences as a firefighter and, and a black firefighter at that? That's another great question. My experiences as a black firefighter. I mean, we can start with one, me not even knowing that I could be a firefighter speaks a lot about um, New York City and the fire department, um, the lack of diversity. I think back in 96, 1996, there was less than 2% of, of the force was African-American. So out of 10,000 firefighters, less than 200 were, were African-American um, at the time. Um, and when I joined, the fire department in the academy, I think I probably had 375 people in my class. There were only five of us that were African-American. Um, I became a squad leader. Um, so I had a platoon I was in charge of in the fire department. I then went to a firehouse that had one black person <laughs> who actually left, retired when I got there. So I was the only black firefighter there for about 10 years um, before we got a black captain and some other uh, black folks transferred in um, 
But interestingly enough, I had so much pride responding in Harlem being a firefighter. I, I just felt like a superhero. But I, I would always, I don't know if I was amazed or disappointed at the, you know, I had a lot of people who looked at me and were like, you're a firefighter? And like, they were really genuine, like, I've never seen a black firefighter. I remember going into a supermarket and I remember one woman thought I had on a Halloween costume and she was very serious about it. And I remember another time I responded to, a, we got a call over in Espionard Gardens, which is like a, a upscale housing complex and they have a pool. And usually a lot of the neighborhood people want to get into this pool because it's very hard to find a pool in Harlem. Um, but it was only for the residents. And I think they had a, a pool accident. So um, brand new, I respond with my fire truck. We go to this pool and they have a security guard that opens the gate to let us in. Now, if you know anything about the fire department, we're known for really being raggedy. They use the word salty. Like we just like to have ripped t-shirts, ripped pants, dirty boots. You know, it just shows our experience, our age, our seniority. Um, but me as a brand new firefighter, I don't know, squeaky clean uniform. It wasn't, it was, wasn't faded yet. It still had its creases in it. And as a probie, a probationary firefighter, um, and the fire department had just taken on EMS. So we were now doing emergency medical response. I was tasked with carrying all of the oxygen, the gauze, the blood pressure cuff. Everything we needed for a medical emergency, the probie has to carry all of that. So we go to this pool, the security guard, a black guy, he opens up the door. It's five firefighters, all of the white guys go in. I'm the last guy and I try to come in and I'll never forget, he like puts his hand in my chest and he's like, you're not a fucking firefighter, get out of here. And I was stunned and I was like, and I just remember being like helpless and being like, I am a firefighter, let me in. And I remember one of the white guys turning around and like, he's with us. And, but it just speaks to them not seeing black firefighters. Like I'm the only one in a crisp brand new uniform. All of my coworkers are in faded t-shirts and blue jeans and, but I'm the one that's challenged. And I think that speaks to, um, it speaks a lot to what people in the city were used to seeing as their image of a firefighter. And I can tell you so many other stories of people um, not believing I was a firefighter, not letting me into buildings, not letting me into their homes, not wanting me to give them any medical care. Um, or I've had some people who would come by the firehouse and this older black man would cry because he's like, I've never seen a black firefighter in this firehouse before. Like you're the first, and, you know, and, and you can see he was very proud of that. So there was definitely an interesting dynamic being a black firefighter and a black, uh, well, used to be a majority black place of Harlem, um, but being treated as not, not belonging. Wow, wow. And so like, how is it now? I know that the fire department has made a lot of effort to increase the diversity, men and including women. How's it looking now for the fire department? I mean, I, I tell, I mean, my brother's on the job now. I tell a lot of people. And I used to be salty about it because it's like, oh, my God, I wish I could go back in time and be a firefighter now because there's houses now that have 10 Black brothers or sisters in there. It's like some firehouses are just overflowing with diversity. Yes, there's still some spots that aren't. I think right now it's moved from 2% to 12%. 
um, I remember when I was a drill instructor, um, there was a class that came in and it was like 50 black brothers and sisters in there. And I was looking at them like, yeah, I don't understand. This is a huge accomplishment. I came up with five. I have 50 now. And then, and that's not even an anomaly. Regularly, there's 25 to 50 brothers and sisters now coming through a class of 300. Um, so I look back and I'm like, oh, I want to do it all over again. I want to be able to have some people like me that I can, you know, it's just, it was just a different vibe and feeling. Um, but it, I, it's, it's a beautiful thing now. There's a lot more people of color. It's more diverse. There's a lot more women. Um, and, and, and the beauty of it is it shatters the stereotype of what we think firefighters look like. It's, there's no big mustache, six foot six, blue eye, white guy anymore. There's short black women, there's short Asian men, there's tall, light-skinned black. It's like, Af there's even African firefighters. Like, it's extremely diverse now. And um, it's, it's, I think it's an exciting time. So, okay, tell me more about the Vulcan Society and what is the impact that they had on you while you were at the firehouse? So while well, the Vulcan Society had an, a, a huge, I mean, they're the only reason why I took this job. Um, the Vulcan Society knew, was, the Vulcan Society was founded by Chief Wesley Williams, who was one of the first black firefighters um, in the 1940s. And he understood that the fire department had a, a, had a, 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 a systemic racism issue and he formed the Vulcan Society. And um, the Vulcan Society then took it upon themselves to go out in the city and beat the drum and spread the word about the job and the benefits to attract more people of color to take it. Because back then it was almost like a father-son job. If, if your father was on the job, he passed it down to you. And that was the only way you knew, which is how I never knew anything about it in the 1990s. I knew nothing about the fire department. Um, which is funny, knowing that Harlem was really suffering from a lot of fires. A lot of the inner city communities had a lot of fires um, during those years, but people of color still didn't know about the job and knew didn't didn't see themselves having that job. So the Vulcan Society took on the role of spreading the word, took on the war the the role of of advocating to of to get more people of color on the job. So that's how I got on the job. And then the Vulcan Society was responsible for me um, joining what they called the recruitment unit back in 1998, which was the first recruitment unit. And I remember the fire department saying, we don't have a problem getting people to take this job. But the Vulcan Society was like, no, but you have a problem attracting people of color. So they put together this ragtag recruitment unit back in 1998. And all we did, it was five of us. We saturated the high school, the cities, the barbershops, the movie theaters, the train stations with and with just it was almost like the Nation of Islam back in the day with the paper, you know, you know, we were just out there waving applications and pulling people over and just trying to get them to uh, take the job. And, and usually when we told people about the benefits, they were like, oh my goodness, yeah, I'll, I'll take that job. How do I sign up? So I did that. That was because of the Vulcan Society. And then in 2003, 2004, um, another thing that the Vulcan Society was responsible for, we knew that the people that came through the academy, 
um, because there were no white uh, black instructors, it was it was kind of a tense atmosphere being you know five black firefighters in a class of 375. And usually a lot of those folks had family members on the job or had stepped foot in a firehouse and it wasn't foreign to them. And as you know, for me, it was kind of intimidating. Um, so what the Vulcan Society did is they advocated to get a lot of black instructors uh, and drill instructors in the academy to kind of be a liaison and to kind of problem solve and, and, and be there for people of color to reach out to if they were having any issues. Um, and the Vulcan Society was responsible for me being uh, maybe one of the first black drill instructors um, in the academy. Um, and I loved that job because it, it really allowed me to really help and advocate for a lot of people who could have gotten washed out of the academy if there wasn't someone like them to advocate for them. So the Vulcan Society played an extremely instrumental role in just you know building up the numbers. And then lastly, what they did a few years ago is they brought a lawsuit against the fire department for you know discrimination, um, and that was challenged for many years. And then you know a federal judge finally acknowledged that there was some issues, um, and 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 they won that lawsuit, which then opened the door for hundreds of uh, mostly black and Hispanic candidates who have been discriminated against to then have the opportunity to come on the job. So they're responsible for this increase in numbers. They're responsible for me having a job. They're responsible for not only, and, and the interesting thing is not only did they open the door for um, Hispanics and blacks and other people of color, but just like the civil rights movement, it kind of opened the door for women you know, and it opened the door for other white candidates also. So um, it just opened the door and made it um, um, equally accessible to all, if, if, if that's a great word to use um, for people to, to get the job. Wow. Wow. And so here's, so I don't, I'm not sure which direction to go because the audience doesn't know one thing about you. And I kind of want to, so I'm going to, I'm going to go two different directions. First things first, mm -hmm. you had Left, when you left the fire department, because you've left the fire department now, mm -hmm. but you became an actor. So if for everyone that doesn't know, well, you read in the bio and I said it in the intro, or we'll have said it. Hisham is an actor like on TV, Blacklist, like the real channels, not like your cable, cable, cable <laughs> channels. So Hisham, tell us like, how did you transition to become an actor? Yes. That's interesting. I just got off the phone with a, with a, with a firefighter, you know, cause now I get all of these phone calls from other firefighters who are aspiring actors and actresses and want to know how to do it. So, you know, most people, unfortunately, I won't say unfortunately, but a lot of people believe that, you know, especially when it comes to acting that you just jump up and, you know, walked on a TV set and, and did it. Um, and a lot of people don't know that I took my first acting class in 1997, 1998. But before my acting class, I was always into the arts. In high school, I was in a dance program. I had traveled to France and Brazil and London with Gloria Gaynor and, and another company just dancing. So I was always dancing and doing theater in high school. And then I transitioned that into acting. And I took my first acting class at a place called um, NEC, Negro Ensemble Theater Company, which is like the major training hub for Sam Jackson, 
Denzel Washington, Debbie Allen, all of the great um, African-American thespians came out of that school. So I took my first class then, but then even though I was an actor, uh, a firefighter, um, I always juggled both. So I, I tell many people, you know, we get six weeks paid vacation in the fire department and there's something called a special vacation. So I would save my vacation days and then I would use them when I had an audition or a couple of times I went to Little Rock, Arkansas and did a play for six weeks. I did that twice. I used my special vacation. So I was down there doing a play, six weeks, getting paid, getting paid for, for the fire department, came back, did my job, and it, it, it worked out. And in 2013, I got called for the blacklist. That was supposed to just be uh, one, one episode. It turned into two episodes. And I was older enough, I was old enough to know not to make the rookie move of, oh, I booked a TV show. Let me quit my fire department job. I made it. I was like, nah. I know how this business works. One day you're hot, one day you're not. So I juggled the blacklist and the fire department for two years. And when I hit my 20th year, I retired and then got a series regular contract for six years. And ever since then, I've, I've been on a TV show, but I've done a lot of other things. I've done the Law and Orders. I did another show called Gun Hill with Reggie Bythewood, who's the husband of um, Gina Bythewood, who did Love and Basketball. Um, I've done a lot of indie stuff, um, but Blacklist has been like the major TV show and the first series regular thing that I booked. So were the guys at the firehouse giving you, uh, Josh and you, because you were an actor and firefighter at the same time? Yeah, I mean, they always tease you. That's that's just firehouse family business. I mean, I, I think it's tough because, you know, part of the, the beauty of being a firefighter is, you know, we can get mutuals and get off easily from work so i can call up somebody and be like hey i got an audition tomorrow can you work for me and he'll be like yeah i'll work for you and he'll work for me i'll go to the audition and he'll see me the next day hey did you get that audition i'm like nah he's like oh man you suck well you know so i mean but that 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 comes with it but i mean but also for the most part i did have a tremendous amount of supporters then and now who are i consider firefighter fire department family who have supported me throughout this journey. Um, you know, there was a, a chief that that had my back, you know, to, to put in the paperwork to get a special vacation, to go out of town to do a play. Yes, you can do it, but it does take um, a lot of paperwork. And there were people that made it easy for me to be able to do that. So, and that's because they believed in me and loved me and wanted to see me succeed. Oh, the power of having a supportive tribe and village. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So tell me about this character that you play on Blacklist. Yes. So the character I play on Blacklist, his name is Dembe Zuma. And he uh, is like, was described to me as being this child freedom fighter um, who was rescued at a young age by Raymond Reddington, who was the lead on, on the show. And that because of that rescue, we then become uh, bonded as, you know, brother to brother, father to son. Um, we just have this unbreakable friendship. And he is uh, <laughs> this master criminal. And even though Dembe Zuma doesn't believe in a lot of the criminal activity, uh, he just has a tremendous amount of dedication, loyalty, and respect. Um, so he acquiesces and, and, and does what he has to do. Okay, okay. So everyone, if you haven't watched, please catch... Uh... 
Hisham on uh, Blacklist. Now, during your time, you've picked up a few hobbies. So we talked about foreign, well, the the firehouse being a foreign place for uh, people of color because they hadn't had the experience and father and son will usually, you know, have that father passes it to son. Mm -hmm. Another foreign place that I find not a lot of people of color is a golf course. Tell us, how did you get into golf? Wow, that's that's a funny story. When I look back on it, you know, it's, it's I'm kind of sad that I missed out on so much, but you know, it happens when it happens. Because in the fire department, I think everything kind of revolves around a lot of group activities, specifically ski trips and golf outings. Those are like you can go to any firehouse, and those are two major things that they do. And those were two things that I never did growing up. And I remember when I heard about ski trips, I was like, I don't like the cold. I don't know how to ski. I'm the only black person. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and when it came to golf, I remember we used to be in the TV room and they used to put on, and this is when Tiger was in his heyday and everybody be watching it. And I'd be like, I'm not watching that. It, it's boring. Um, so I've spent most of my career not going on ski trips and not going to golf outings. And then a buddy of mine had a wedding in Dominican Republic and he invited me to the wedding and he was an avid golfer and he was black and I'm in Dominican Republic. He's like, come on, let's go play golf. And I'm like, Oh, I'm in Dominican Republic. All right. I'll give it a shot. And I remember I go there and I remember they're like, Oh, you need to have a college shirt. I was like, Oh my God. Well, we sell them $75. I was like, Oh my God. Well, I want to play, so I I put on this $75 shirt, and I remember I had these heavy cargo shorts. Um, I don't even think I had golf shoes on. And I just remember playing, and I was just beautiful, just the way the grass was cut, seeing the water, seeing the homes. I just was overwhelmed with this feeling of, of tranquility, and I was hooked. I was like, wow, this is golf? And I remember coming back from DR and going to a city course. And I was like, oh, uh, this is not what I was introduced to, but I was still loved it. Um, So that was my introduction. But then again, you know, like you said, I was still extremely intimidated. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know how to play. And there was a guy from my firehouse that took me out to Van Cortland. And I remember playing and getting frustrated. But I'm 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 a, I'm competitive and I wanted to learn, so I didn't quit. And but I was also embarrassed being a black man playing with these white people and not being able to keep up. So um, and I posted this on my Instagram the other day. I would I would challenge myself. I would try to get up like four in the morning, five in the morning to get the first tee to see if I could play without anybody else so I wouldn't have anybody judging me or looking at me. And as you know, that's very hard to do. You're usually gonna get some partner. Um, so um, that went on for a while and then I heard around about the original the original T and I, I think that's where I met you. I was introduced to you at the original T and when I went there, I was blown away at how many black folks were there. Not, and not only there, but playing golf on a professional level and knowing the rules and the etiquette and the outfits. And I was like, oh, I have to, I, I gotta get a little more serious about this. And then that's when I came back and started looking for coaches and taking lessons. And 
you know, that's 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 how it happened. And and the same story with snowboarding and skiing. I, I went on a ski trip with a black guy who kept telling me about it and fell in love with snowboarding and went the same path with, with snowboarding that I'm doing with golf. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us about like, so for what I understand, because I know this, because I know this on June 22nd, you're having a golf tournament and yeah. you, you are having it at a city course. Tell us like the story behind this tournament. Yeah. So the story behind the tournament is, you know, it is, it all goes back to the Genesis, the beginning, what, you know, ever since I joined the fire department, I had a, like I said, I was forever in debt to the Vulcan society. So uh, I served as Sergeant of Arms. Uh, I was, I've been on the executive board. Um, I've always been trying to contribute, trying to help doing whatever the Vulcan Society needs because they are responsible for me having this job. And it was a great job. Um, and it not only a great job, but it also allowed me to pursue my other passions of acting. So I, like I said, I'm forever, they have a saying, you're forever in the red, I'm forever in debt. Um, so I've spent my career giving as much as I could and doing anything I could for the for the Vulcan Society. And then when I fell in love with golf, and especially on the show, I started to see that I was invited to a lot of these celebrity golf tournaments. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a whole nother world. Like just the food was amazing. You could get a caddy, get gift bags. I was like, this is dope. I can do this the rest of my life. Um, and then a bell just went off one day. I was like, wow, why not? You know, a lot of people are asking me to bring my celebrity to their tournaments and help them raise money for, for, for amazing um, reasons and foundations and benefits and organizations. And I've always wanted to create my own foundation and give back to the, just the village of Harlem. Um, so it just hit me. I was like, you know what? Why don't I use my celebrity and do a golf tournament and give back to the Vulcan Society, but at the same time, uh, try to introduce the sport to people who were like me growing up, who knew nothing about it. Um, so that was my thinking. And then even when I went to Original T, I remember when my friend told me about it, I was like, I'm going. He was like, yeah, but you know, it's like $350. But, you know, I was a firefighter making decent salaries. So to me, I was like, I don't care. I'll pay a thousand if I love it. I'll get the money to do it. But I remember trying to get other friends to come with me because I remember the first time I went, I knew no one. So I was like, again, I'm going to be paired up with some people. I don't know. I was scared. So I was trying to get people to come with me to have my own foursome. And the first thing people would say is $350? Golf? nah, I'm not doing that. I don't even know black people play golf. I'm not. So I, again, I was left swinging on my own. So my thinking behind this is as much as I love private courses and country clubs and immaculate greens, um, there are some beautiful city courses and that's basically most of the courses I play now. Um, but my thinking was by playing at a city course, it, you know, it would allow um, easy access for people to get to, um, the price could be reduced. And then also, <laughs> I think the level of, you know, that energy you feel when you're on a course of the range of coming around and making sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. I think it might be toned down a little bit on, on a city course, or maybe not. And it's interesting. I just played at a golf course the other day and 
you know, there was one hole which was, uh, you, you couldn't put your golf, you couldn't take your cart on it. And I, you know, I played it the right way, but the hole coming back, you could put your cart on it. And I was looking for a ball and it was in the trees in between both holes. And I'm driving around looking for it. And the ranger comes up to me and he says, um, you know, this is a uh, car path only, da, 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 da. And I said, yeah, that's that hole over there. He says, what hole are you playing? I said, I'm playing this one. And he was like, oh, okay, okay. But, you know, I can tell you many stories, and I'm sure you have a lot of stories of being challenged on the course um, and people assuming that you're a person of color, you don't have the, you don't know the rules, the etiquette, and all of that type of stuff. But I say all of that to say that I, I just thought that by doing this, by doing it at a city course, by having, you know, mixing people who don't know the game with people who do know the game, that it would create a less, it would create a more nurturing environment for people to learn the game and have fun. Yeah, you have another secret too coming out. You have some youngins coming too, from what I heard. Yeah, so I'm really, 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 this warms my heart and makes me really smile because um, when I met you at Original Tea, I remember being introduced to this brother. Um, well, my friend, it's, what's, what's even crazy is I have to go back. So I have a friend named Henry and me and Henry used to race motorcycles way back in the 90s, all up and down the Bronx. And I saw Henry at the golf tournament. And I'm looking at Henry. I'm like, oh, you went from motorcycles to golf now. You play golf now. And he's like, man, I've been playing golf all my life. I've been trying to tell your brothers to get down and nobody wanted to get down. And I was like, oh, really? And then I see Henry playing and I'm, he's like a scratch golf. I'm like, oh, you have been playing all your life. But Henry introduced me to you. And then Henry introduced me to another brother. And I was like, look, I'm trying to get lessons. Where can I go? I have no place. I don't know where to start. And he was like, oh, I know this brother, Will Larkin. He teaches out of Chelsea Piers. Uh, I know this other brother, um, Randy Taylor, over at Bridge. And I was like, Bridge? He's like, yeah, 105th. I'm like, I live on, what? It's weird. Three blocks from me in Harlem? I was like, I've never heard of this place. So thus, that started my training at Bridge. and. Uh, Went through, you know, amazing, passionate teachers there from Randy Taylor to Brian to now this guy, Tyler. Um, beautiful facility, great place to train and learn. And uh, I got the idea from, you know, uh, Wendell Haskins tournament of seeing these pro athletes tee off on the first tee. And if you know the course, you know, Turkey, uh, that wild turkey, that first tee box is just an amazing view. And I remember one year seeing brothers hit, but then I think the last year they had these women hit. And I was like, holy smokes. Like that was inspiration to want to get better and inspiration to play well that day. So when I came up with this idea for the tournament, I was like, wow, it would be great if the, the Bridge Foundation could lend us some of their young boys um, and, 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 they do the same for others that um, these, the women that I saw tee off at the, the original tee um, do for me. And uh, I reached out to them. They loved the idea. They welcomed the idea. So the bridge will be sending some, a mix of high schoolers who I've seen 
practice at Dunwoody and these kids are amazing. And some of their graduates who are going off to college. Um, so I'm really excited to um, not only see these guys, but that bridge recognize um, my dream and, and what I'm trying to do. And they are in line with it and, and contributing to the course. That's awesome. And like, so quick shout out to Randy Taylor, who's now down in North Carolina at Crystal yes. Cove. Yes. So shout out to him because he made a number of events that I had at the bridge for women in golf uh, possible. So shout out to him and shout out to Will Larkin. So he gave me my first opportunity to work at a golf course when I was wow. uh, up at Van Cortland of all places. So okay. the good community of people. And then the woman that you're talking about, shout out to them. That was Sedina Park, Shasta, and I think Ginger Howard. And I think Miko Ty was also there. There were a number of women there. So just an a, a awesome community of golfers that don't necessarily get the shine that they deserve. So these communities and these conversations we have, we'll do it. We'll get, we'll get it. Yeah. So one thing I didn't know, well, actually I know it, but I don't think the audience knew you're an OG Harlemite, like original Harlem, right? Yeah. I've been on this block since. 19- you don't have to shout your block. Cause you know, this is. Okay. Okay. I shout on my block, but I'm just, okay, okay. I've been here since 1970. Wow. Wow. And so you've seen a lot of changes in Harlem. What Absolutely. are some of the things that, you know, even as a firefighter, fire department is changing. What are some of the things that you're seeing? Um, well, in Harlem, I, you know, a lot of the things I'm seeing is, I mean, good and bad. You know, I just remember growing up and there was a lot of mom and pop breakfast spots. Um, a lot of those have, you know, been put out of business. Um, but there are a lot of other great restaurants here. I, I just remember back in the day, you had to go downtown and get a good meal, or, you know, a five-star meal. Now I can walk up my building, walk up to, to Frederick Douglass and, and get a whole from African food to Italian food to burgers. Like, it's just insane uh, the type of food you can get. Um, and then, you know, I just, I, I'll never forget, just, you know, as a firefighter, I was very aware and I remember we used to have to do building inspections and used to say, okay, there's 350 vacant buildings in our area. And we used to have to go do inspections and just make sure nobody was in it or people were in it, get them out, board it up. Um, and now you can't find a vacant building. <laughs> uh, like I remember rows of vacant buildings that are now all brand new housing. Um, I remember back in the day, when I got my first car, I always could come back home after partying and park in the same exact parking spot. I mean, my brothers used to sneak my car out at night and I would never know because they got it the same parking spot. Now you can't find a parking spot. <laughs> so all of those type of things. But I mean, Harlem is bubbling, it's beautiful, it's amazing. There's there's also even though a lot of the mom and pop shops are gone, there are a lot of new, beautiful um, Black businesses and other multicultural businesses. Um, so there has been a lot of changes for good and for bad. Um, but, you know, changes is, is always coming. Yes, yes. And actually, so shout out to you because you're also doing sponsorships and a lot of the um, businesses that have been kind of following up are small businesses. So tell us about just like the goals to highlight people. Yeah. So my goal was, and it's interesting, and it's, well, it's hard because, you know, growing up, me being the oldest of five and, and losing my parents early, I'm a person who never asked anyone for money. I've never asked anyone for a favor. I don't ask people for anything. 
I just go out and do for self. And this is the first time put myself in a position where I now have to. Um, so that's been a very hard um, struggle for me. But what made it easier for me is I just went through my Rolodex and I was like, I know all of these black firefighters and other firefighters who have their own businesses. Why don't I just reach out to them and say, hey, I'm doing this. Why don't you sponsor this whole promote your business, um, your firehouse or even just your family? Um, and luckily enough, I've gotten a good response. Um, it's amazing that what, what you'll get if you ask. <laughs> the only thing I wish I could do more is I, I noticed because I make it my business to um, support a lot of Harlem businesses. And I noticed that, especially with COVID, like you wear masks now. So there's a lot of businesses I go in that I support, but I wear masks and they don't know who I am. So I just feel funny going back to those businesses and be like, hey, can you do this? Like, you know, I've bought hundreds and hundreds of candles from you. And I'm sure they would, whether I supported them or not, but that's just my own personal hang up. Um, but I've reached out to um, a couple of Harlem businesses. I'm still waiting to hear back and hopefully I mean, my goal is really to have all of those holes filled up with Harlem businesses and, and family and friends. Awesome. Awesome. So one of the things you have to share is your favorite golf memory or story. Good or bad? Either. What do you want to tell the audience? Oh, my God. Give us both, actually. I'll take the good, the bad. You can leave the ugly for someone else. I'll give you, I'll give you, um, I'll give you a bad first. So... Uh, <laughs> I'll go, I go to this golf course and this is back when I was losing a box of balls a day and I go and I buy a box of balls. No, first I think I went, yes, I go and buy a box of balls and I come down to the starting first tee, the Ranger house and nobody's there. So I'm starting to prepare, you know, and this older white guy, he comes down from the clubhouse and I see him coming, but I'm still preparing, but I know I have to give him my receipt, let him know. And uh, he comes down and I dig in my pocket and I get my receipt. And he says, oh, I saw you, I saw you from way up there. You're trying to sneak on the course. Um, but I see you, what are you doing with that watermelon? And I'm like, and I look at my buddy and I'm like, what am I, like, what are you talking about? So he points to the box of balls that I have and the front of the cover, and I saved it. I probably finally threw it out. It was a box of, uh, I forgot the brand. It was probably Pinnacle or something. But the front cover was like a pinkish red hue. And I was like, this always happens to me when these type of things happen. I'm so stunned and baffled that I don't get to react the way I want to react. But I was like, this dude mistaked a box of balls for a watermelon? Now, I don't know if I could blame that on age, whatever it was, he thought I was gonna sneak on the hole, but that was one of the craziest 
stories um, that happened to me that, that, that stands out to this day. Um, and as far as good stories, when it comes to golf memories, I would say was my first, um, when I went to the original tee, um, that first tournament, I was overwhelmed, mind blown. I was just blown away that it was this whole other world moving and shaking that I had spent almost 40 years of my life not knowing about. Yes. Kind of mad that I'm playing catch up. <laughs> like, um, so those are the two stories that, that stand out to me. So how often do you play? I, so, you know, we film Blacklist 10 months out of the year. So um, while we're filming, it's very hard to get out. But when we film, I usually try to go out every weekend, but now the COVID is so packed, I don't like weekends. So anytime I'm off during a weekday, I will pe- I will play sometimes three or four times a week. When the summer when the summer hits, I play at least four times a week. Wow. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So you're out there. Yes. Okay. Do you have a favorite ball? Wait, no, let's not shout anybody out unless they're giving you checks. <laughs> yeah, That's what we're not going to do. But I will shout out Wendell Haskins for changing the game. I mean, the work that he's doing to just bring more people to the game, but grow it and just diversify it and make it a fun sport. Absolutely. It is definitely, he's doing an excellent job with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we're not shouting any brands out, no. but thank you, Hisham, for joining us. And any last words about the tournament on June 22nd? What do you want the audience to do? No, I, I just want every, and I, and I keep repeating this, you know, because again, I know golf can be intimidating. I know you might never think about playing or want to play or interested in it. The, the way I'm pushing this and promoting this, it's almost like a block party. I want you to come out, meet, that's another thing we didn't speak about with golf is the beauty of it is you meet all walks of life. You meet all type of resources and networks and people and friends for life and business deals. I mean, you always hear that saying, oh, you do your business deals on the golf course. I mean, it really does happen. Um, but I want people to come out as if it's a block party. I want you to come out prepared to have a good time, to meet people, to enjoy good weather, um, to build on your network of, of friends and at the end of the day, also contribute to an organization that not only serves all of our communities in an emergency response way, emergency response way by you know putting their lives online and, and, and that, but also uh, an organization that is dedicated to uplifting um, Black and Brown people and people of color and making sure that they have everything they need to. Um, have a productive career in the New York City Fire Department. Awesome. Awesome. And so I feel like that's a great way to end. And when people see your profile, they can get to the link to register as well, right? Absolutely. Awesome. On my Instagram page, the only link I have is is, is to the Hisham Taufi Golf, uh, Free Celebrity Golf Classic. So they can go to that link and sign up right then and there. Thank you for having me and, and doing the work you do by spreading the word. I hope you heard his gem. Did you hear it? His gem was... It is amazing what you'll get if you ask. Isn't that true? All right, well, I'm asking you. Go to his profile or even go to an 18 and sign up for this golf tournament. 
Talk about paying it forward. This guy served in Desert Storm. He was a correction officer. He was a firefighter. And now he's an actor sharing his gift with the world. And he's giving back to the Vulcan Society and helping you do so as well. So if you're a small business, please reach out to us and sponsor a hole or donate a prize or make a donation of your product. And if you're a golfer, sign up and play. Network and raise money for the Vulcan Society. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the large corporations. You should make a financial donation because it goes to the Vulcan Society and they are a 501c3 organization. You should also look for other ways to support businesses like such. The small businesses need you too. Well, that's all for now. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Tease Me.